In March of 1862, Major General George B. McClellan began to land his massive army on the Virginia Peninsula, created by the York and James Rivers. Its objective? Richmond. That army got as close as four to five miles, close enough to set their timepieces to the ringing church bells of the Confederate capital. Then, on the 31st of May and 1st of June, there were two messy, inconclusive days of battle. One of the casualties, a significant one, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston. Knocked from command of the army defending Richmond, President Jefferson Davis named another. That new commander was 55 years old, and for the first month he reorganized, ordered the digging of trenches, and postured before the enemy. For that supposed inactivity, the Richmond press derisively called him Granny. Then came the 25th of June, and for the next week, what this commander unleashed was so audacious that no one ever called him Granny again. No one. This is the story of Robert E. Lee's first major offensive. This is the story of the Seven Days. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Embarkation for Little Mac's move to the Virginia Peninsula began from Alexandria, Annapolis, and Washington City on a Monday, March 17, 1862. Transfer of the massive force continued until April the 3rd. 389 vessels of all description were required. From Philadelphia ferry boats, Long Island Sound side wheelers, and big Hudson River excursion boats to transatlantic packets. 113 of the 389 were chartered from the private sector at $24,300 a day. To transport, 121,500 men, 44 artillery batteries, 300-plus field guns, and 114 siege guns, 1,224 wagons and ambulances, and 14,592 animals. 500 tons of supplies were needed per day to supply the campaign. A British military observer traveling with the expedition called it the stride of a giant. The 100-mile movement toward Richmond began April 4th, but the stride of a giant soon became that of a dwarf. There were contributing factors to the glacial advance. Faulty intelligence, thanks in part to Confederate deception. To Intel's inflated enemy numbers, another factor for caution was McClellan's willingness to believe himself outnumbered, and so he adopted siege-like tactics. That meant the moving and placing of heavy artillery and 13-inch seacoast mortars which weighed in at 17,000 pounds per gun. Then, 
There was the influence of Mother Nature, bad weather, swampy terrain. Back in Washington City, an exasperated Lincoln agonized over McClellan's case of the slows. Also troubling Mr. Lincoln was the success of Stonewall Jackson, whose fantastic Shenandoah campaign froze some 60,000 federal soldiers, many of whom McClellan requested for his drive on Richmond. Still, despite all these concerns and hindrances, by the end of May, there were some Union elements no more than four to five miles east of Richmond. On May 31st, and with his back to the wall, Joseph E. Johnston finally struck two isolated federal corps south of the Chickahominy River, the Battle of Fair Oaks or Seven Pines. In the inconclusive two-day fight, there were some 6,000 Confederate casualties and some 5,000 Federal, but none more important than late in the day of the 31st, when Johnston was struck in the right shoulder by a bullet. As he reeled, he was hit again, a shell fragment to his chest. His wounding prompted Jefferson Davis to place in command a 55-year-old general whose promotion raised eyebrows. One Confederate major asked what many were probably thinking of the man nicknamed Evacuating Lee, or Granny Lee. It was Major E.P. Alexander who, while riding the Richmond lines, asked a question of fellow officer Colonel Joseph Ives, who had previously served with Lee in South Carolina. Ives, tell me this. Has General Lee the audacity that is going to be required for our inferior force to meet the enemy's superior force, to take the aggressive and to run risk and stand chances? Ives drew rein on his horse. Alexander, if there was one man in either army, Confederate or Federal, head and shoulders above every other in audacity, it is General Lee. His name might be Audacity. He will take more desperate chances and take them quicker, north or south, and you will live to see it too. Alexander wasn't alone in his doubts. The Richmond Examiner wrote of Lee as, quote, a general who had never fought a battle, who had a pious horror of guerrillas, and whose extreme tenderness of blood inclined him to depend exclusively on the resources of strategy, end quote. And across the way, another opinion from George McClellan himself, who said simply, I prefer Lee to Johnston. The former is too cautious and weak under grave responsibility. Personally brave and energetic to a fault, he yet is wanting in moral firmness when pressed by heavy responsibility and is likely to be timid and irresolute in action. As soon as Lee assumed command, he began the acquisition of better rations and uniforms. He strengthened the officer corps. All along his eight-mile line, he ordered his men to erect better breastworks and redoubts, and they dug new trenches. Yet to many, digging wasn't fighting, and so Lee was tabbed the king of spades. Those spades might well have been aces, for Lee benefited from some good fortune after the Battle of Seven Pines. It rained every day for a fortnight and forced McClellan to rebuild all 11 bridges over the Chickahominy River to the east of Richmond. 
McClellan's line was a mile away, and yes, they were digging too. While the village of Fair Oaks was at its center, it was the federal right that intrigued Lee. To gather information, he called on a stocky 29-year-old with a reddish-brown beard, James Ewell Brown Stewart. Lee wanted a reconnaissance in force, and so at 2 a.m. of June the 12th, 1,200 specially selected cavalrymen were ordered to be in their saddles in 10 minutes. The half-mile-long column rode northwest out of Richmond, north of the headwaters of the Chickahominy, then turned east and southeast. At a place called Old Church, 35 miles into the ride, Stewart made the decision not to retrace his route, but ride all the way around McClellan's force. Lee had not endorsed this encirclement, but his orders allowed discretion, and Stewart pounced on that and on the Federals. His men shot up a Federal supply train at Tunstall Station. They created havoc. In response, one angry father-in-law gave chase. Brigadier General Philip St. George Cook. His Union alliance was not lost upon his son-in-law, Stuart. He commented, He, Cook, will regret it but once, and that will be continually. Two manifestations of that contempt. Stuart changed the name of his child, Philip St. George Cook Stuart, to James Ewell Brown Stuart, Jr. And the raid forced his father-in-law to stay awake for 36 consecutive hours. On Sunday the 15th, Stuart's exhausted force rode back into Richmond with the loss of only one. The raid covered anywhere from 100 to 150 miles and resembled a three-day fox chase. Proud of his work, Stewart admitted to another, I left one general behind me. General consternation. It also forced a concerned McClellan to change his base from the York to James River to the south. He also ordered all but one Union Corps south of the Chickahominy. The only corps still north, Fitz John Porter's Fifth Corps. It was to cover and protect the change of base, and from his raid, Stuart knew Porter's right was in air. Lee and some 92,000 men had an opportunity. The key was Jackson's 18,000 men still in the Shenandoah Valley. Lee wanted them to move from the valley and fall on Porter's exposed right while three Confederate divisions under James Longstreet, A.P. Hill, D.H. Hill, some 47,000 men would sweep eastward along the north bank of the Chickahominy, threatening what Lee still believed was McClellan's supply line to White House Landing and the York River. On the 16th of June, Jackson had his men moving the 120 miles. He rode ahead of the column and met with Lee one and a half miles east of Richmond. There, Jackson agreed to have his men in position for a flank attack early on the morning of June 26th. What Lee, Jackson, or anyone in the Confederate camp failed to realize was that McClellan planned an offensive as well and scheduled it for June 26th. He wanted to move a mile or so west with his infantry, then bring up his siege guns, shell Richmond, then carry the Confederate capital by assault. However, 
Lee beat McClellan to the punch. Therefore, George McClellan's Peninsula campaign was about to yield to R.E. Lee's Seven Days campaign. Taking enormous risk, Lee left John Bankhead Magruder and his 25,000 Confederates south of the Chickahominy to defend a four-mile front against three times his number. To appear greater in number, Magruder resorted to old tricks. He ordered the firing of shells up and down the line. He marched and countermarched his men, which created dust and noise. That, and word that Jackson was on the way, froze McClellan. He canceled his planned attack for the 26th, but did order Union cavalry to impede Jackson's arrival. Expecting Jackson on the morning of the 26th, Lee wanted to attack from left to right, from north to south. He hoped each strike would force the enemy back, which would then uncover more bridges over the Chickahominy, thus allowing the next Confederate division a chance to cross and attack. He wanted some 56,000 Confederates to hit Porter's Fifth Corps, 35,000 men who were isolated on the north bank of the swollen Chickahominy. The morning of Thursday, the 26th came, and those Confederate divisions waiting for Jackson all listened for his attack, which was to be the signal for the wave-like attacks to commence. However, around 9 a.m., a message arrived. It was from Jackson. He was six hours late. Everything was in limbo. The day drifted, grew hotter. And so did the impatience of at least one Confederate division officer. At 3 p.m., one Confederate general slipped the bridle. Though there was no word from Jackson and no order from Lee, A.P. Hill ordered his light division across the Chickahominy and drove advanced Federals back through Mechanicsville. Towards 5 p.m., one of A.P. Hill's brigades... Brigadier General James J. Archers contested Porter's main line, which sat solidly on high ground behind Beaver Dam Creek. Hill fully expected Jackson to support his attack and crush Porter's flank at any instant. Yet the hero of the Valley campaign was late. Very late. Just after 5 p.m., even as Hill's men were engaged, Jackson was still three miles from Hill's northernmost brigade. His approach so slow. Only 13 miles in 14 hours, and only seven miles in the last eight. Now, in their defense, Jackson's men were exhausted. Their supplies left behind, and Union cavalry had created obstacles. Then Jackson himself was not familiar with the terrain, his maps inaccurate, and no staff officer arrived to guide him to his assigned position. And though he could hear the sound of battle, he failed to communicate with Lee. Though Porter's exposed flank was only a mile or two ahead, an exhausted and fogged Stonewall ordered his men to bivouac for the night. Now again, in his defense, he had had only 10 hours of sleep in the past four days. But the first major battle of the Seven Days Campaign, one that originally was to begin with his attack, rolled on without him and his men. For Robert E. Lee, in his first pitched battle, it was a general's nightmare. The fight spun out of his control. 
By means of only Confederate frontal attacks, the Battle of Mechanicsville, Beaver Dam Creek, or Ellerson's Mill, was a Confederate bloodletting. Porter's main line of defense under Brigadier General George McCall's Pennsylvanians was unassailable. Six batteries, 36 guns commanded the East Bank and raked the long plain that A.P. Hill's troops had to use to even approach the Union position. Lee, who had crossed the Chickahominy at 5 p.m., realized his plan was undone and tried to call off any more attacks. However, like the day, his message went awry. To ease pressure on A.P. Hill's men, Lee finally ordered in D.H. Hill's lead brigade. They went in at Ellerson's Mill, and it, too, met disaster, as illustrated by the 44th Georgia, which lost 335 men of its 514. Darkness, mercifully, ended the battle around 9 p.m. For Lee, it had been an extremely frustrating day. All coordination had been lost. Attacks had been disjointed, piecemeal. Indeed, only one-fourth of his planned attack force even joined the fray. His objective, a four-mile advance to New Bridge to allow a link-up with John Magruder's men on the south bank of the Chickahominy, had not been met. Lee had suffered 1,484 casualties to the Federals' 361. Still, in his official report, Lee did not censor either Jackson or A.P. Hill. But no question, he was frustrated. Across the way, McClellan was elated. To Washington City, he crowed, Victory of today complete and against great odds. I almost begin to think we are invincible. Yet the ferocious nature of the southern attacks bothered him. He ordered Porter to withdraw his Fifth Corps eastward during the night to a second line. By the dawn of Friday the 27th, only a rear guard defended Beaver Dam Creek. Porter's main line was now four miles to the east of Boatswain's Creek, and it, too, was another formidable defensive position. There were 80 guns and Union infantry protected by rifle pits and felled trees. Undaunted, Lee planned to renew attack the very next day. He wanted three columns to again strike Porter's isolated corps on their front and still exposed right flank. And so, on that Friday, A.P. Hill's lead brigade, five South Carolina regiments under Brigadier General Maxie Gregg, struck Porter's line around noon. It was near a five-story gristmill called Gaines Mill. Gregg's South Carolinians drove in Federal skirmish lines, and the rest of A.P. Hill's division pressed forward. Their approach was, again, over open fields to a fringe of pine trees, and then down to Boatswain's Creek. Across the creek, Porter's Federals were dug in at the top of the eastern slope. It was a repeat of the previous day. Attack across open fields, then struggle to hit the enemy who were dug in at the top of a ravine. Around 2.30, with Porter's center of the objective, A.P. Hill sent in six brigades on a front three-quarters of a mile wide. Gregg's South Carolinians were again in the lead. 
Moving against U.S. regulars in the 5th New York Zouaves, the New Yorkers actually left their defended position, struck first, and inflicted 60% losses to the South Carolinians before they were driven back. It was a microcosm of an afternoon of bloody ebb and flow. By 4 p.m., Hill's light division was spent. Longstreet's men were now up, but Lee waited for Jackson, whose men had taken a wrong road and were not where they needed to be. Meanwhile, D.H. Hill's Confederate division was committed to battle. Daniel Harvey Hill attacked his old West Point roommate, Union Brigadier General George Sykes. As D.H. Hill's Confederates moved out onto the open plain, some 400 yards wide, they came under fire from three U.S. batteries. To seize those guns, his men moved at the double-quick with rifles at right shoulder shift. Their attack brought them through some woods, and when they emerged, they were 50 yards from the Union line. It was then that Union artillery opened up. The scene? A bloody series of charge and countercharge. About this time, one of Jackson's divisions did make it to the field. It was under Richard S. Ewell. Lee ordered them in to ease Union pressure on the two Hills divisions. In their charge, Brigadier General Arnold Elsey took a bad wound to his face. His staff shot to pieces. And six foot four inch, 250 pound Major Roberdew Wheat in command of the Louisiana Tigers, was riddled within 20 paces of the Federal line. Yet, Ewell's men got a foothold on the far slope, and each new Confederate attack built on it. Just after 5 p.m., Lee, as the day before, tried to coordinate one huge attack, and while doing so, came upon Jackson. Ah, General, I am very glad to see you. I had hoped to be with you before. It was a gentle rebuke. For a second day, Porter's Fifth Corps, though alone, fought well. And then around 6 p.m., an ominous silence. Porter's men were exhausted, their ammo low, his reserve committed, and he knew the pause probably meant another Confederate attack. He had requested reinforcements from McClellan's main body, but only two brigades had been sent. Porter read the silence correctly. After five hours of battle, Lee finally coordinated an all-out attack. It would be the largest in Confederate history, 56,000 men attacking 35,000. It began about seven and one of the last divisional waves that went in included a brigade that belonged to Brigadier General John Bell Hood, his Texas Brigade. As they were committed, Hood noticed a Confederate gap to his left and moved to correct it. He ordered the 18th Georgia and 4th Texas into it, personally leading the 4th. They reached the crest, moved down the slope to Boatswain's Creek, and about 150 yards away from the Federal position, dressed their line, fixed bayonets, and went up the slope at the double quick. The lines became entangled. Fire was point-blank. There were bayonet thrusts, muskets used as clubs. George W. Taylor's New Jersey Brigade went to pieces. Porter's left bent back 
The Confederates pursued and ran into double canister blasts from Union artillery. But bloody gaps were replaced by more men in butternut and gray, and the fighting again went hand to hand. It was all too much. A sea of gray engulfed Union batteries and captured 14 of 18 Union guns. Lee's desperate charge had carried the day, though darkness and exhaustion prohibited Confederate pursuit. That night, a worried McClellan ordered Porter to withdraw to the south bank of the Chickahominy. He also sent a telegram to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton in Washington, a biting one. In part, it read, The government has not sustained this army. If you do not do so now, the game is lost. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you or to any other persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. The battle known as Gaines Mill, Boatswain's Creek, or First Cold Harbor cost McClellan 6,837 casualties and, more importantly, his confidence. For Lee, 8,751 down. After two days of savage attacks, nobody remotely thought of him as Granny Lee. And he wasn't through. Across the way, at 11 p.m. that Friday evening of the 27th, Little Mac held a council of war. All five of his corps commanders were present and were stunned when McClellan announced that the Army of the Potomac would abandon its entrenchments before Richmond and move south to a new position on the north bank of the James River at Harrison's Landing. McClellan called it a change of base. Several believed it was nothing more than a euphemism for retreat. When word circulated, two division commanders from the Third Corps rushed to McClellan's headquarters. Brigadier Generals Joseph Hooker and Philip Kearney protested the move. One armed Kearney to the point that his aides were astonished he wasn't sacked on the spot. Despite their efforts, on Saturday, June the 28th, the Army of the Potomac withdrew down the Williamsburg Road, then south crossing two bridges that allowed passage through White Oak Swamp. Though it was done with stealth, Word did reach Lee, who after two frustrating days wanted to strike again. He ordered divisions under James Longstreet and A.P. Hill to cross at Newbridge and with Major General Benjamin Hughes' division to move southeast to cut off the federal retreat just below White Oak Swamp. Simultaneously, Magruder and Jackson's men were both ordered to move east along the Richmond and York Railroad to get behind the Federals. Though Magruder had had little sleep over the last four nights, he drove his 11,000 till they made contact three miles east of Fair Oaks at Savage's Station. There they found McClellan's second, third, and sixth corps, about half of McClellan's army in column retreating. It was a supreme moment, but outnumbered three to one, Magruder understandably paused. He needed help, and he hoped it would come from Jackson, who was late for the third time in the last four days. Jackson's 18,000 were to have repaired Grapevine Bridge, crossed it, and reinforced Magruder. Incredibly, Stonewall sent a note that he had, quote,
other important duty to perform. End quote. Unbelievably, Thomas Jonathan Jackson and his men never showed that day. Magruder's 11,000 annoyed McClellan's retreat, but little else. By 10 a.m. of Monday, June 30th, McClellan's army was safely through White Oak Swamp, but even still, the long blue serpent stretched some 10 miles, and halfway between White Oak Swamp and Malvern Hill invited attack, particularly at a little place called Glendale, where they were most vulnerable to attack from the west. And worse for the Federal Army, at Frazier's farm, two routes of Union retreat funneled into one at the Willis Church Road, a choke point and real potential for disaster. Once again, Lee saw opportunity, but he desperately needed better coordination amongst his subordinates. He again chatted with Jackson, who seemed like his old self, but his passage through White Oak Swamp was again painfully slow. True, Federal artillery fire was a concern, but Jackson showed little energy to find another crossing or ford. And then, incredibly, around 3 p.m., during an artillery duel, Stonewall Jackson found a tree and went to sleep. He rose one hour later, found time to write his wife a letter stating that $50 was appropriate to give to the church, but paid little attention to bringing his force to bear in the fighting at hand. Later at supper, just after dark, Jackson again fell asleep, this time with a piece of unchewed biscuit between his teeth. Jarred awake by his nodding, he looked about and said, Now, gentlemen, let us at once to bed and see if tomorrow we cannot do something. Of the fight at Savage's Station, Jackson, again, had not been a factor. Still, Lee had a second column aimed at Glendale. It was Benjamin Hugh G.'s 9,000, and it moved toward the crossroads. When there, he was to open fire, signaling Longstreet and A.P. Hill's divisions to strike from a parallel road. Two miles northeast of Glendale, Hugh G. found his path obstructed by felled trees. In command of his lead brigade, Brigadier General William Mahone immediately left the Charles City Road and had his pioneers hack a military road through dense woods. Federals ahead saw what Mahone's men were doing and proceeded to fell more trees in their path. If you will, a battle of axes. Around 2 p.m., after moving a mile where no road had been before, Mahone and Hugh G.'s United Forces emerged on the Willis Church Road only to find an entire Federal division deployed. At 2.30, Hugh G. opened with his artillery, and of course Federal guns returned their fire. That seemed to do it for Hugh G. His force never tested the Federal position. Though he had a 3-2 infantry advantage, he ordered his men back into the cover of the woods, and he was done for the day. Meanwhile, Lee himself approached from the southwest with the divisions of Longstreet and A.P. Hill, 18,000 men listening for the sounds of Hugh G.'s guns. They heard a short barrage, but then it stopped. 
so Lee hesitated. Yet still, he had one more chance to cut up the Federal retreat, for there was a fourth Confederate column approaching. Moving in from the south, and only three miles away, it was 6,000 men under Major General Theophilus Holmes. Fifty-seven years old and hard of hearing, he brought up his infantry and artillery to harass Federal wagons. By 4.30 p.m., he had six guns about 800 yards away. Ready to inflict damage, Holmes instead received it. His infantry had created dust, and Fitzjohn Porter had seen it. No fewer than 30 Union field pieces opened up along with 100-pound salvos from Federal gunboats anchored on the James River. With those 100-pound monsters dropping fat drops of lead, Holmes emerged from a house by the side of the road, cupped his hand behind an ear, and the audio-challenged North Carolinian said, I thought I heard firing. Oh, how he did. Holmes pulled his force back. Out of four Confederate columns that could have inflicted damage on the Union retreat, only one was left. The column Lee had held. The column Lee was with. Men under Longstreet and A.P. Hill. By now, McClellan's wagons were safe, but two divisions near White Oak Swamp and five at Glendale were not. At 5 p.m., Lee ordered that last column to attack, hoping that Hugh G. from the left and Jackson from the swamp might hear the guns and join in. Longstreet's men went in first. The Federal flanks solidly anchored. The Confederate attack hit the Union center, defended by 6,000 men under George McCall, who had already fought at Mechanicsville and Gaines Mill, and whose men had had little sleep over the last three days. His Pennsylvanians broke and streamed back toward and through a Union battery. Longstreet's men pursued, and in hand-to-hand fighting, the 11th Alabama swarmed and captured the guns. By now, A.P. Hill's men were committed, and with that added weight, McCall's Pennsylvanians broke again. It was yet another supreme moment for Lee, but Jackson or Hugh G.'s men arrived. Without support, though the Federal center had been pierced, the Federal left under Joseph Hooker and Phil Kearney on the right not only held, but counterattacked and drove Longstreet and Hill's men back before a Confederate counterstrike drove them back. Darkness ended the chaotic seesaw battle of Glendale. Frazier's Farm, or White Oak Swamp. It had been a stalemate. Lee had captured a few guns, but lost 3,300 men. Another chance to punish McClellan's army had slipped away. The Army of the Potomac's losses that day, 2,853. That day, the 30th, though Lee had 50,000 men within a three-mile radius of the fighting, only a small percentage of them actually gave battle. The next day, July 1st, Lee hoped for one last time that he might destroy McClellan's army. When one of Lee's aides expressed frustration that McClellan might get away, the man of iron will cracked. Yes, he will get away because I cannot have my orders carried out. 
McClellan's last position, the site where his army had retreated, was three miles south of Glendale at a place known as Malvern Hill. Cresting at only 100 feet, it was more plateau than hill. It was an area one and a half miles long and three-quarters of a mile wide. Looking over the open field, Confederate Major General D.H. Hill offered, If General McClellan is there in force, we had better let him alone. And indeed, the Federals were there. And in force. In a rough semicircle, they had about 100 guns, wheel to wheel. Include siege guns and artillery pieces on James River gunboats. They had some 250. At noon of the 1st, Lee had a mile-long crescent at the base of the plateau. Along his Confederate line, Major General W.H.C. Whiting held the Confederate left, D.H. Hill the center. Two brigades under Hugh G. and Magruder were on the right. Ewell, Jackson, A.P. Hill, Longstreet, and Holmes were in reserve. The battle plan that day was simple attack. Though in reserve, James Longstreet found a couple of hills that roughly matched the same elevation as the Federals and reasoned that if those hills had some 40 to 60 Confederate guns and 100 more were placed on an eastern hill, the Confederates could blast the Federals out of their position. Lee okayed the placement. He did so around 1.30 p.m. and gave orders to Brigade Commander Lewis Armistead. To Armistead, if he saw the Federals break from the Confederate artillery barrage, Armistead was to attack and do so with a yell. That yell of a single brigade would be the signal for an all-out attack. The plan required what there had been little of thus far. Coordination and communication. And quite honestly, Lee had not personally reconnoitered the two hills Longstreet suggested. Then, though the guns had been requested, those immediately on hand were not placed on the hills selected, and 90 more were still in the Confederate rear with officers there, unaware that they were needed at the front. A recipe for disaster. An entire battle plan created on the premise that 140 guns would be expressly positioned when, in fact, only 20 arrived where they were intended, and as each one unlimbered, Federal cannon on Malvern Hill spotted them and knocked out every one. At 3 p.m., Lee realized he would not have the artillery he wanted, that he needed. He decided to abandon his tactical plan for the day and rode to the Confederate left to see if the Federals might be flanked. He found nothing. Then, two messages arrived. On the Confederate right, Major General Whiting reported Federal troops were falling back. It was an incorrect report, for they were only shifting. The other message was from a sick and exhausted Magruder, one who had arrived six hours late to Malvern Hill, one who the day before had marched and countermarched his men 18 miles. He reported that Armistead's brigade had made a concerted attack upon the enemy. 
when in fact all they had done was drive away some annoying federal skirmishers. But his report smacked of Lee's old tactical plan, the one he had decided not to implement. And yet, with Magruder's communication, an equally exhausted, frustrated Robert E. Lee, believing that Armistead's men were driving the enemy, ordered, press forward your whole line and follow up Armistead's success. The day before, Lee reproached Magruder for lack of vigor. Not this day, for at 4.45 p.m., Magruder ordered his men forward. 2,500 moved through the wheat and meadows toward the 100-foot crest of Malvern Hill, bristling with Union artillery and infantry. Armistead's men saw the movement and jumped to their feet to join them. Their cheers drifted toward the Confederate center, where D.H. Hill sat in his saddle smoking a cigar. Incredibly, he, like many others, was still under the impression that Lee's original order was intact. So just after 5 p.m., he hurried his five brigades into the assault. His men would have to cover a half mile, up a gradual incline with absolutely no cover. As soon as they left the cover of woods, Federal artillery opened up. The entire Confederate attack was doomed from the minute it began. Union artillery opened with shot and shell, but as the range closed, they used case and canister. Whole lines of Confederate infantry disappeared. Men in butternut and gray seemed to explode in front of their officers' eyes. As D.H. Hill later wrote, It was not war. It was murder. Though some men amazingly threatened the Federal line, reinforcements in blue were called up, and by 6 p.m., every Confederate attack had been broken or driven to the ground. In the gathering twilight, the open field took on an unearthly aura. Limbless, headless bodies, clumps that could not even be recognized as men. As evidence of poor staff work and lack of coordination, men under Jackson, Ewell, Whiting, Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and Holmes, none of them entered the fight. Then again, that would have added to the 5,355 Confederates who were down. Federal casualties, 397 killed, 2,092 wounded, and 725 missing. That night, McClellan ordered his army to slip south under the cover of darkness to Harrison's Landing and the protection of U.S. Navy gunboats. The seven days' campaign was over. On July the 2nd, President Jefferson Davis officially proclaimed a day of thanksgiving for the deliverance of Richmond. But it had come at a dreadful price. Delivering the southern capital... R.E. Lee suffered a staggering 20,614 casualties, one-fourth of his army. He lost 10 brigade commanders and 66 regimental officers and countless opportunities. As he sadly noted, under ordinary circumstances, the federal army should have been destroyed. McClellan lost 15,849 
6,053 of them missing. On July the 8th, back near Richmond, Lee reorganized. Eleven divisions were too many. Though not sanctioned, he organized corps. He also weeded out ill-suited officers. Meanwhile, down at Harrison's Landing, McClellan sat and stewed while Union political and military divisiveness reigned. Up in New York, Horace Greeley wrote, Never before did an army so constantly, pressingly need to be reinforced, not by a corps, but by a leader, not by men, but by a man. Finally, on August the 3rd, the army would be ordered north to meet a new threat, but without Little Mac. The Peninsula and Seven Days campaigns had ended, and so too, the last great chance to end the Civil War in a civil fashion. The last, while the war was still a rebellion and before it became a revolution. With the repulse of McClellan and his Army of the Potomac, so evaporated the last chance for a speedy conclusion to the American Civil War. Just over two months later, the theater of the war in the East would switch from the outskirts of Richmond to those of Washington City. Lee would invade the North, and events there motivated Abraham Lincoln to announce a measure that he had been sitting on since July. Indeed, once again, war, as it often was and is, proved to be a vehicle for social change. For in September of 1862, the 16th president provided the North with a moral crusade, one that back on the peninsula George McClellan never wanted when he was driving for Richmond or reeling from Lee's savage blows during the seven days. For Lincoln would issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Next time we gather, we'll take you to the siege lines of Petersburg, Virginia. We'll relate the details of an engineering feat that if successful, would break Lee's lines and then hopefully end the war in the East in one fell swoop. I hope you'll join us for an incredible event and story, The Battle of the Crater. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.